This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. When does a writer's phrase become a cliché? Well, according to one literary website, it's when the words in that phrase become so overused that they've become trite and demonstrate a lack of original thinking. Phrases, for instance, like the apple doesn't fall far from the tree or we're not laughing at you, we're laughing with you. But what about Christian cliches? We certainly have a lot of those, but not all of them are even true. And my next guest says that we get into all kinds of trouble when we use these kinds of simplistic statements as our measure of understanding God and his word. They need some correction. And that's what we're going to tackle today with Dr. Jeff Myers, president of Summit Ministries and author of the book. We'll be talking about unquestioned answers, rethinking 10 Christian cliches to rediscover biblical truths. Jeff, wonderful to have you here. How are you doing? Janet, it's great to be back on your show. Very well, thank you. Good. I'm so glad to hear it's great to have you back. Will you talk early on in your book about this problem? I like this word, simplicism. I love that. I don't know if we can say that five times fast, but talk about that a little bit. What what would you say the definition of simplicism is, and how does that relate to Christianity? Well, let me contrast it with simplicity. Of course, everybody watches Marie Kondo clean out people's houses and help them come to grips with it spiritually. Yeah. Uh, but simplicity is usually considered to be a virtue of living a less complicated life. But simplicism is different. Simplicism is the conviction that something isn't really true unless it is easy to understand and summarize. Hmm. So when somebody says, you know, that's just over my head, and so therefore, you know, I'm not going to pay any attention to it. That's simplicism. If somebody says, boy, my brain hurts, I'm having to think too hard about this, there must be an easier way. That can be simplicism. Um, And and it can be true. Uh, Their core truths are in many ways simple, but that does not mean that anything that's complicated is therefore you know, untrue. Right. That's what I see a lot of Christians falling for. Yeah. You bear that out a little bit, because when you're talking about the conviction that something cannot be true unless it's simple, how does that manifest itself that you've seen when you've looked across maybe the evangelical subculture or the church in general? I think it manifests itself in the same way in the evangelical subculture as it does in, say, the more of the leftist subculture. I, I'm speaking to you from my office, which is in Manitou Springs, Colorado, a little hippie town right at the foot of Pikes Peak, where most of the cars are held together by bumper stickers. <laughs> right, right. You know, hashtag resist. And I, I've seen them all. I see them all every single day. But Christians do the same thing, not just through bumper stickers and T-shirts, but very often through elevating people who create um, cliché kinds of thinking. So, for instance, you might have a pastor who is dealing with something that's complicated, and of course it's very difficult for pastors to take what they learned in seminary, starting with Greek and Hebrew class, and try to communicate it. 
but they're talking along and, and people are going, oh, I'm not really sure. And then all of a sudden the pastor summarizes it in one sentence and people go, oh, ah, ooh, that's good. <laughs> and they write it down and their thinking stops at that point when it should be the starting point of going deeper. Great. You're right about that. Like, let go and let God, those kinds of simplistic phrases that we hear a lot. We hear them all of the time. And my colleagues at Summit Ministries and I started this with the conversation, well, I think it was last summer. I said, guys, are you hearing these cliches? Because I know a lot of our students at Summit Ministries, we we run these two-week-long courses of study for young adults who are 16 to 25 before they go to college so they can really strengthen their biblical worldview and become leaders. A lot of them are coming with unanswered questions, Janet, but a lot of them very uncomfortably are also coming with unquestioned answers, things that they've heard all of their lives but don't really understand, and that makes them very vulnerable. Yeah, you actually say that the unquestioned answers are what they struggle with more than they actually struggle with unanswered questions, which I think might be a surprise to a lot of people. I think, well, it is a surprise. It was a surprise to me. As I wrote the book, I I asked my team, make your list. And we, I made my list and we came up with 10 that we thought we would cover in the book. 10 unquestioned answers that I think we as Christians should abandon. Not so much because they're wrong, but because they keep our thinking at a shallow level when we need to go deep. But I think it's a problem because unquestioned answers make us vulnerable If you go off to college and say in your biology class, well, it takes more faith to believe in evolution than it takes to believe in creation, which is what you hear from creation workshops, you'll be in big trouble because your professor is ready for that, and your professor will cut you down in front of the class, embarrass you. I cannot tell you, Janet, you probably know people like this too. They're, they just kind of walked away from their faith because one person questioned something that they thought they believed and they couldn't answer it. Yes, yes, absolutely. Right, and you wonder how firm was your foundation in the first place if one answer you know, derailed you? How much did you really understand about what that person was was refuting? I mean, that That's the problem, isn't it? That you have a lot of people whose thinking is so shallow that a lot of, you know, Christians who have maybe gone to church for a long time and have faith in Jesus Christ, but maybe not a very deep faith, will immediately retreat because they don't have the inclination to dig. That That, that is a very concerning thing, I think, for the entire church. If you have Christians like that who won't even go back and dig into the question to try to refute the answer that, that derailed them in the first place. That is right. Uh, you, you're, you've nailed that. It, I, think, I think shallow thinking is a problem for all of our country, really, around the whole world right now. Yep. And I, I think Jesus' followers should lead the way in saying, no, we're going to go deeper. And here's why, Janet. I mean, Jesus called us to be fishers of men. Anybody who's ever been fishing knows you don't catch a fish by skimming the surface. Right. You have to go deep. Right, right, exactly. So let's dive into some of these cliches that you cover in the book. I think you've picked some great ones, Jeff, to refute. The first of which is, God said it, I believe it, that settles it for me. Now you see some variation of that on the bumper stickers, as you mentioned before, but talk about what is wrong with that phrase. It sounds okay on the surface. What, what is really missing, though? I do think it sounds okay on the surface. Where that one bends in the bad direction is at the very end. When somebody says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it for me. In other words, I am the one who gets to decide whether it is true or not. 
because it makes sense to me, I believe it. Or because, you know, God, I, this is what I say that God said, yeah. and that's how I see it. Therefore, it's true because I like it. All of the unquestioned answers come down to making it about me. Yeah. It is, it's me and Jesus, you know, that kind of a thing. It, we always make it about ourselves rather than about God and His Word. Exactly. So in the book, I take people into a, what I hope was a fascinating exploration of what the Bible really is, what it's about, uh, what it means that it's inspired, what it means that it's without error, the internal evidence for the truth of the Bible, the external evidence for the truth of the Bible. Some of the fascinating stories, for example, there was a, a book several years ago that said King David probably never even existed. And one year after that book was published, Israel Finkelstein, who's a professor of archaeology at Tel Aviv University, found a David inscription. <laughs> And, and he said, biblical nihilism collapsed overnight with the discovery of the David inscription. And since that time, somebody's actually found the palace of David. Wow. So it's incredible to realize, wow, what the Bible has said all along that people scoffed at, now we have these archaeological discoveries and are finding that it's, it's true in what it says about the historical events which makes it far more likely that everything else it says should be taken seriously as well. That's right. And, and those are good facts to have on hand when you're talking to somebody who finds his faith derailed by a college professor. Hey, did you know, you know, your college professor claimed X, Y, or Z. Did you know there's archaeological evidence that flies in the face of that? In a way, it's about stimulating some intellectual curiosity about the Bible as well, which is something I want to pick up with Jeff Myers when we come back from this break. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Janet Mefford, and we're partnering with the Bible League on Stand With Them, Bibles for the Persecuted Church. Paul reminded Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is defined as suffering for the sake of Christ and His glory, and it comes in many forms all over the world. In India, it's being shunned by Hindu family members. In China, it's the loss of church buildings. In the Middle East, it could be jail or even death at the hands of extremists. Isaiah is a new Christian praying for the nourishment that comes only from God's Word. Send him a Bible for only $5. $100 sends Bibles to 20 Christians, and a limited time match will double your gift. Help us help Bible League send the hope of God's Word to 1,200 persecuted believers. All you have to do is call 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 800-YES-WORD. 
the healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have Dr. Jeff Myers with us, president of Summit Ministries and author of the new book. It's called Unquestioned Answers, Rethinking 10 Christian Cliches to Rediscover Biblical Truths. We're talking a lot, Jeff, in this discussion about the shallow thinking that often characterizes much of modern Christianity. And you're really making a plea here for people to think more biblically and to think more deeply and logically about the faith. And that's so important because these cliches that you're going through in your book can really, on the surface sound okay, but actually will not give definitive answers if that's all you're relying on. So what about this issue of being able to have evidence on hand when somebody is buying into one of these cliches? I think it's really important. And if if people pick up a copy of Unquestioned Answers, they'll see some of the basic evidence presented there, but they'll also find sources that I love to have on hand with my students who attend our two-week-long courses at Summit Ministries, we encourage them to take home books like uh, my textbooks, Understanding the Times, Understanding the Faith, Understanding the Culture. We encourage them to take home Douglas Grotice's book, Christian Apologetics, a, mm-hmm. a handbook of Christian apologetics. We encourage them to take home Joshua and Sean McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. We ought to have a library on hand, not because we will ever read those books cover to cover, but because when big questions come up, sometimes the answers that we find on Google can be misleading or we don't really know uh, whether the source is is credible, and and we need to have something on hand to be able to go deeper. I agree. I don't think Google is a very reliable apologetics text. (laughs) You have to be very careful when you're out there Googling things. Well, you can just as easily fall into misinformation as good information, right? I mean, I think people say, well, gosh, if somebody has a really good-looking website, it must mean that they're on to something. Well, they might just be really good at making a good-looking website in order to tell better lies. Yes, that's right. Well said. What about this cliche, just have faith? You know, this is one of those things that I tend to see written in curly cues, you know, on the wall. You can go buy it at some bookstore, you know, or some home decoration store. (laughs) Just have faith. What is the problem with that? It's trite, first of all, but how do you break down that phrase and say, no, we need to go a little bit deeper on this issue of faith? Some people are well-meaning when they say, just have faith. They're, they're saying, hang in there. You know, I will often tell people, I'm cheering for you, or you have what it takes. But those things can become trite because it's a way of excusing ourselves from a tough conversation, right. uh, really dealing with difficult things. 
And it, it brings up the question of what faith really is. You know, Mark Twain, long time ago, said, faith is believing what you know ain't so. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and I, I said that, in a, I was giving that illustration in a church one time, Janet, and I was about ready to refute that point, and a lady in the congregation just shouted, amen. <laughs> and I, I stopped it. People kind of chuckled a little bit, and I thought, oh boy, how am I going to handle this? And I just said, well, before we get excited about that, let me, let me dig into this for a minute. Because what makes faith faith, biblically, is not that we have it, it's that the object of our faith is worthy of belief. Amen. And when we start with that, we realize, wow, the, the faith isn't something that we have, it's something that we live. The Apostle Paul said the righteous live by faith. He said that over and over again. And so did the author of the book of Hebrews. Right. Yeah, that's important. The object of faith is everything. If you have faith in yourself, forget it. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, that's where your faith needs to be. But even then, Jeff, when people talk about faith in Jesus, they can use it like Jesus, you know, just rub his head and he'll do what you want. He's the Santa Claus in the sky. Just have faith. He'll take care of it. He'll do it for you. He loves you. He'll do, and, and that's not necessarily so. If you really dig into scripture, you understand that, my goodness, we go through all kinds of trials and temptations and suffering on this earth. We're never promised a trouble-free life. So just having faith is very, very trite when you're looking at the entire text of Scripture and what it says about the Christian life. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Christian philosophers, or well, all philosophers will talk about what they call justified true belief, that we have beliefs, these beliefs are true, and that we are justified in holding them. And if we, if we have that, then we can live differently as a, a result. But, you know, you pointed out that your examples really got me thinking. When somebody says, I have faith in myself, they're still saying, uh, what they're essentially saying is, I have a justified true belief that I am the center of the universe and that whatever I decide is what will be true. Yes. And such a person is set up for misery in so many ways. But isn't that so common in our culture today? Very, very common. Right. Which is exactly why it's good for you to refute all of this. Now, let's go to another one. There's so many good ones. I'm not going to get to all of them. People can read about it in your book and, and get much more depth here. But another one that comes up is Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. I've heard that a million different ways over the years. What does that say about worldview? How does that tie into the issue of worldview? <laughs> Well, I, this is one I used to find myself saying. So when I was writing this chapter, I was doing it with gritted teeth. <laughs> uh, Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Now, when you ever hear somebody say something is this and not this, you always have to stop and ask, why does it have to be one or the other? Hmm. That's the first logical question you want to ask. So I looked up the word religion in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, and it means religion is a set of beliefs about the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe. Mm -hmm. Do Christians have a set of beliefs about the cause, nature, and purpose of the universe? Without question. Mm -hmm. That's all of Scripture. Right. So Jesus is our Savior, but he also offers us a framework for understanding all of reality. And that's why at Summit Ministries, we don't just teach students about a Christian worldview. We actually reveal to them some of the counterfeit worldviews in detail that they will be facing so they can know how to refute them. 
Right. That's excellent. Yeah, that's excellent. And I think people who use that phrase use it because they want to project to non-Christians. We're not just about following a, a bunch of rules and regulations. It's a personal fellowship that we have with God himself through Jesus Christ. But yeah, the way of saying that, it loses something. You're right. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And that's that's a really important point. What about this issue of Jesus not being a social justice warrior? This is very timely and very important. Can you speak to that a little bit, Jeff? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I came out of the academic world, Janet, before I came to be the president of Summit Ministries. And so I was really shocked to discover that Christians love this term social justice, because in, in the academic world, social justice means justice in terms of the redistribution of wealth, opportunities, and privileges within a society. Yes. It very clearly means that. It does not ever mean anything else. Okay? So social justice is like Bernie Sanders' theology. Yes. So when people say Jesus was a social justice warrior, they may not realize it. What they're hoping they're saying is, I care about the poor and the oppressed, Uh, which is good, by the way. God cares deeply about the poor and the oppressed, and that is a theme all throughout Scripture. But when people say Jesus was a social justice warrior, they're saying is, this is the primary thing about Jesus' ministry, that he cared about the poor and the oppressed. Mm -hmm. And it's really important for us as Christians to understand that Jesus came as the Son of God to reconcile us to God, not to affirm anyone's utopian agenda. Excellent. Right. Exactly. That's that's a great summary of what the Bible actually does say. He's not a social justice warrior. Caring about the poor doesn't mean that you're a socialist. <laughs> Absolutely not. What about this phrase, Jeff? God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. That, that one, people really love that one in particular because they're trying to just emphasize God's goodness. But what do you see as being a little bit off kilter with that particular cliche? Well, Janet, and I tell the story, if people want to see a free video about this, they can come to unquestionedanswers.com. I tell a story of a time where I was in a very difficult, deep, dark place in life, and I came to church, and the pastor, you know, proclaimed this, God is good, and the congregation replied all the time, and then the pastor replied all the time, and the congregation shouted, God is good. And I, re- I, I felt like I wanted to just shrink into myself hmm. because I, I looked around and I realized there were a lot of people who were affirming this uh, aloud, but there were a lot of people where I could just see it in their eyes. I'm not sure this is true. I'm not sure this is true for me. I'm not sure that just shouting this aloud changes the circumstances of my life that are so very difficult right now. So I'm, I'm suggesting that we set this unquestioned answer aside, not because it's untrue, but because it, it doesn't, it's not something we can lead with. Mm-hmm. We need to lead with questions. And one of the key things we teach at Summit Ministries when somebody is in pain is, and they say something like, I could never believe in a God who would allow evil is to just not start with a response to the question. Just start by asking, how did you get there? What's your story? Hmm. Tell me how, how you arrived at that conclusion. And then use it as an opportunity to build the conversation 
Uh, I don't think I'm not one of these guys who believes that every conversation has to close the deal, quote unquote, and be completely wrapped up. I think we have the opportunity to open up relationships rather than close down conversations. And that's really important. And I think what really comes through in your book, Jeff, is how you are really trying to get the message across to Christians. Think know your Bible, study your Bible, understand what the Word of God says so that you can go deeper, so that you can become more rooted in your faith in Jesus Christ. And that's a message all of us need to remember. The name of the book is Unquestioned Answers. Dr. Jeff Myers from Summit Ministries. Unquestionedanswers.com is the website. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. Again, it's always great to talk to you. It's great to talk with you, Janet. Your show is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. God bless, Jeff. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Bible League. Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Well, former Vice President Joe Biden is well on his way toward becoming the presidential nominee from the Democrat Party as the media touts him as the moderate who emerged from a more radical lineup of would-be nominees. But who could ever claim with a straight face that Joe Biden is a moderate, especially when it comes to abortion? As the Washington Examiner recently put it, the truth is that the Democrat Party's center of gravity has shifted so far left that they will now nominate the most liberal major party candidate in American history. And that matters tremendously when it comes to little human lives. We're going to tackle it now with March for Life President Jeannie Mancini. Jeannie, it's great to have you with us. How are you? I'm doing well, Janet. Thanks so much for having me and for covering this story. Oh, I'm so glad you are all over this because this needs to be emphasized more and more and more, doesn't it? What is it with this myth that Joe Biden is a moderate? I don't know how in the world you could ever claim that at all when you look at what his positions are. Yeah. Well, maybe he's a moderate relative to uh, Bernie Sanders. I mean, maybe there we could say he's a little bit more moderate than Sanders. But when you consider where he stands on this issue, on the abortion issue, no. I mean, he is out of touch with mainstream America and really very, very extreme on this position. And, And it wasn't always so. I mean, he has changed a lot, including in the last eight or nine months. He's he's shifted wildly to the left on this. So, I mean, the bottom line is that Joe Biden is for abortion until birth paid for by your tax dollars. (sighs) And that is so out of touch with mainstream America. We can drill down on what that means a little bit, but it's, it's just completely extreme. Yeah, it is. And I want to do that. But first, let's go back to something that you mentioned before, and that is how his position has shifted. He used to support the Hyde Amendment, right? So now he's flip flopped on that. How in the world can you flip flop on the Hyde Amendment and understand that you shouldn't force pro-lifers to pay for abortion and now saying, oh, no, I'm just going to I'm going to go the other direction on it. What, what has he been doing here? Right, right. Absolutely. So the Hyde Amendment is only the latest. But I mean, Joe Biden early in his career was 
for what we call the Human Life Amendment, Ugh. which was essentially an amendment to the Constitution that showed that every life is a gift from the moment of conception and that abortion should be illegal. So he was for that early in his career. And so step by step by step, as his party has become really anti-life, anti-poorest of the poor, when we're talking about the unborn, he's followed. So what happened with regard to the Hyde Amendment is, and by the way, that's been largely bipartisan until very recently. Right. It was within the last eight or nine months, someone asked him off the cuff, well, where do you stand on the Hyde Amendment? And so he just naturally said, of course, he's in favor of the Hyde Amendment. You know, he's supported that for years, da 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 And lo and behold, the pressure he received from the abortion lobby over the next couple of days, the next few hours, he went about face 360 <laughs> degrees and he said, nope, he's not favorable towards the Hyde Amendment anymore. So that's that's only in the last year we're talking here. And it's he absolutely caves to the abortion lobby on these things. And, and by the way, folks, Hyde Amendment is popular with the American people. And it's singularly the most impactful pro-life policy that we've had over the years. It saved well over two million lives since it was enacted in late in the late 1970s. And again, it's been included as a rider every single year onto the appropriations bill. So it's it's bipartisan, it's popular, it's popular with mainstream America. So yeah, he wants our taxpayer dollars to pay for abortion. Yeah, he does. So Jeannie, has he explained the flip-flop at any point during all of his public appearances? Has he ever given any you know, reason out loud, this is why I no longer think that the Hyde Amendment is appropriate? Or has he just kind of changed positions and hope nobody noticed? Yeah, he changed positions. Bernie Sanders called him out on it in the very last debate. and But Bernie did it in such a way that was very sort of conciliatory. And he's glad that Joe's, quote unquote, seeing the light now. Um, so, no, there's there's really no explanation to this. I mean, it's it's sad because years and years ago, we talked about even abortion, you know, wasn't something that he himself could ever do. But he, you know, would support other people that had to. And um, as a Catholic, he touts his Catholic faith a lot. But there are so many different tenets that um, it just seems like there's a, a real lack of personal integration in the sense of what um, he believes is right and wrong and then what he holds as policy. I mean, it's hard to know what he believes and it, what we do know, of course, is what he holds as policy. Right. Well, we know he wants to be president. He believes that very strongly. It seems like that's probably <laughs> the core of what he believes. He ought to be the president. Well, what yeah. about the federal funding for abortion in the U.S.? You had mentioned that before. What, what is his current and exact position? on that. So that that basically is a Hyde Amendment. I mean, what we're talking about there. But I mean, let's here's where he stands on all of his issues. He is abortion until birth paid for by your tax dollars. So even at different points, first of all, years and years ago, he was 100 percent pro-life. He signed what would be considered the most pro-life piece of legislation ever early on. We have pictures of him that go way back when, you know, with people on our board, the March for Life board in Delaware, etc. Um, and so one by one by one, he shifted on this. So he's not even favorable on limits for abortion. So if you look at where mainstream America stands on this, and so at the March for Life, of course, we, we exist because we know that life begins at conception and that we're going to fight, you know, anything early on. But mainstream America for 11 years strong has wanted abortion limited at most to the first three months of pregnancy. Right. So this is not new. This is, includes pro-choice Americans. So six out of 10 
pro-choice Americans feel that way, and 8 out of 10 Americans at large would limit abortion at most to the first three months of pregnancy. Joe Biden is favorable of abortion until birth. So most Americans know that a baby that's just not yet been born, a seven-pound baby, that something's wrong with aborting that baby that's due in a week, in two weeks, in a few hours. But Joe Biden stands for abortion until birth. So again, Mm. totally not moderate on this, extreme and out of touch with mainstream America, including pro-choice Americans. Right. No, you're totally right about that. That is very significant to point out. I I also have a hard time understanding how Joe is going to push for this federal funding of abortion, not only the repeal of the Hyde Amendment or non-continuation of the Hyde Amendment, but also this idea that a lot more of these Democrats have been tossing around that we really have some kind of federal government obligation to fund abortion. Why? I mean, what is the fundamental principle here is we're seeing the economy tank. Planned Parenthood is not exactly in the poorhouse. I mean, maybe they will be after all of this shakes out, but they have millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. Why in the world does one more thing have to be put on the back of the taxpayer, aside from the fact that they would want us to help fund murder? That's right. That's right. So first of all, Planned Parenthood, which is a, you know, a nonprofit organization, has a about a $2 billion budget every year. And Uh, Over a third of their funding comes from federal and state taxpayers. So they're, you know, well, well funded and and they very typically have, you know, 20 million um, that they have, um, you know, sort of brought in over the year in the black. They've got their, you know, they've got their extra millions that they're storing up. So, yes, this is true. And we also know that when the Hyde Amendment wasn't in place, so in, in the time between Roe v. Wade and when Hyde was enacted, and again, when you just talk about the very sim- simplistic ideas of what Hyde does, is it it prohibits federal funding for almost all abortions, like through Medicaid, etc. So, so that means that federal taxes, for the most part, cannot go towards abortions. There are there are some um, exceptions to that: the life of the mother, rape of a person, etc. So. In the time between Roe v. Wade and when Hyde was enacted in the late 70s, the number of abortions went up uh, during that time period, but, but the number decreased significantly when Hyde was put in place. <laughs> so we know that there are at least 2 million lives that have been saved by Hyde. So these pushes that we're seeing from Congress to eliminate um, the the ban on taxpayer fund of abortion and to have government full on paying for abortion would absolutely increase the number of abortions every single year. And, you know, it's sad in a moment like this with coronavirus and what have you, and we're also afraid about the economy. I mean, fear is driving everyone. And so it's just heartbreaking that the answer um, for the Democrats is more abortion. I know. You're so right. Well, Jeannie Mancini, president of March for Life. You can find out more at marchforlife.org. Always great to talk to you, Jeannie. Keep up the good work. Thanks so much. You too, Janet. Thank you very much for being with us. And we'll be right back on Janet Meffer today.
When an abortion-minded woman walks into a preborn center, it is a divine appointment. It's where she encounters the love of Jesus Christ and has the opportunity to meet the beautiful life growing inside of her and find out that every baby's life matters. I got to hear how strong her heartbeat was. I was like, I felt like she was supposed to be here. And it didn't matter what anybody else told me. And all that mattered was that I was blessed with the ability to carry life inside of my body. And that baby was supposed to be here for something. And that was all that mattered. 80% of women in crisis pregnancies choose life after meeting their babies on ultrasound. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Mefford today? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's banner to click at JanetMefford.com. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. From now through April, Janet Mefford Today is partnering with Bible League to send 1,200 Bibles to persecuted Christians around the world. Can you help? Your gift of $35 will send seven Bibles to Christians in need, and your gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. And right now, with a matching gift, your gift will be doubled. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 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 or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Well, again, I want to say thank you to those of you who have been helping us help Bible League get the Word of God to persecuted Christians around the world. Again, I have to emphasize, I know that this is a really uncertain time for everybody, and I know everybody is concerned about jobs and about making sure that you make wise financial decisions. But if you are able to give, this is just an absolutely vital ministry, getting Bibles to these Christians who have just come to faith in Jesus Christ, many of them, and they have no Bible in their own language. It costs $5 to send one Bible, $35 to send seven. We would like to send 1,200 Bibles to the persecuted church by the end of April. If you are able to give, pray about it, and you see that there might be some room in your budget to be able to give a Bible or two or maybe five, that would be so wonderful. And here is the number to call. It's 800 yes Word. 800 Yes Word. W O R D. That works out to 800 937 9673. I'll say it one more time 800 937 9673. Or if you're online, there is a Bible League banner to click at janetmefford.com. Thanks to all of you who have been giving. You guys have been so generous and we've been really blown away because we know how difficult these times are. And we're so thankful. Thank you so much. This is just such a vital thing to do, even in the midst of these very trying times that we have. Thank you again. It's 800 Yes Word. Speaking of which, I just really feel the need to speak to the issue of reassurance. Because if you're anything like me, you're just looking around a little bit. I was commenting to my husband, I feel a little bit like I did after 9-11. 
like on September 12th and 13th, looking around and saying, what is going on? What is going on? It's the magnitude of this whole thing. It's not just that we have a pandemic. There are questions over whether or not the responses that we're making to the pandemic are worse than the pandemic itself. Is it better to work, to not have the economy collapse, or is it better to just get in your house and stay there for the next 10 to 12 weeks, as some people are saying we need to do? I don't know how that's going to fly. There are just a lot of things that are very concerning to a lot of us during these times. Going into grocery stores, I was commenting, I actually said this on Twitter, I said something along the lines of, you know, you're sitting in a dark parking lot first thing in the morning, the sun isn't even up yet, people are crouching in their cars just waiting for the doors to open, and then the doors open, and all everybody runs in, and they're grabbing, and they're sweating, and they're trying to get out of the store, and they're trying to get what they want, and get it before you do, and I said, it's like Black Friday every day, my minus the deals and the merchandise. And I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek here, but it that's what it feels like. If you've ever gone on Black Friday shopping, uh, we tend to do that every Black Friday because my kids like doing that. My daughters like to do that. And that's how it is on Black Friday. You show up first thing in the morning. It's dark. Everybody's paused and waiting to run in and get the best deals. And there's a fun to it, though, because Christmas is coming. You can get some good deals on buying Christmas gifts for your friends and family. This is nothing like that. It's just really hard for a lot of people. So I wanted to talk about reassurance. And I want to start by playing something that President Trump said. He has been so much on my mind and on my heart. He really has. I cannot imagine the stress on the President of the United States right now. He doesn't want the economy to collapse. I don't think it's just because he wants to be reelected. I think he doesn't want Americans to be hurt. I think he loves this country. I think he's concerned for this country. And I don't think he wants to see people suffer on any level. And he also doesn't want people to get sick. And he doesn't want people to die. Can you imagine the stress if you're trying to do what he's trying to do, all the while trying to deal with political enemies who would be more than happy if the economy tanked, because then they could fundamentally transform America. And that's not far from any of our minds when we recall the words of Rahm Emanuel that you never let a serious crisis go to waste. So in the midst of all this, President Trump had this to say, and I thought this this was just really great. Listen to cut one. For those worried and afraid, please know as long as I am your president. You can feel confident that you have a leader who will always fight for you. And I will not stop until we win. This will be a great victory. This is going to be a victory. And it's going to be a victory that, in my opinion, will happen much sooner than uh, originally expected. It's now attacking. The enemy is attacking 144 countries at this moment. 144. That's unthinkable. It's never been anything like this. And it's vicious. It is vicious. Some people recover well, and some people have a hard time. We all know that. But we will be totally victorious. We will then get our economy up to a level that it was, and in my opinion, beyond, because that will be a pent-up demand. There is a pent-up demand. And uh, a a lot of great things will happen. But I'm very proud of our country. I'm very proud. I'm very proud to be your president. And uh, it's just something that's just you're very special people. Well, that's just really touching to me when I listen to him say that, because you can hear that he's heartfelt. He cares about us. He cares about this country. He wouldn't have offered to work for no money and all of the pressure that he's under and all of the 
fight from the left that he's under if he didn't love this country. And I, I think most people who support President Trump would acknowledge he really does love America. He really does love the people who have made this nation great, and he really wants the nation to be great and doesn't want the nation to suffer. But, you know, I think about this in a, in a greater context. It was kind of ironic that he said the enemy is attacking 144 countries at this moment. And I thought right when he said that, I thought, no, the enemy is attacking every country, the, the real enemy, the enemy of our souls, the prince and power of the air, right? He, he's attacking every country. He's attacking the church. He's attacking sinners. And it would give him so much pleasure if we could all just collapse and die and every last one of us went to hell. Nothing would make him happier until, of course, he's thrown into the lake of fire himself at the end. But I thought about what Jesus had to say in Luke 12, and I'm sure you considered these words as well, because as I was listening to that first cut, I was listening out my window and I heard a bird chirping. And right away, I thought about Luke 12. And you know what I'm talking about. This, these are the words of Jesus. He said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them of how much more value are you than the birds and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life. If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom." Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail. Where no thief approaches and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And I thought how universal is this reassurance from our Lord and Savior. Do not be anxious about your life what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Don't you matter more to God than the sparrows, the ravens? Don't you matter more than the lilies? Do you see the lilies worrying about this? Do you see the birds freaking out about the stock market? Do you see the birds worrying about how they're going to get toilet paper or anything else that we might worry about in the course of our human lives? Of course not. And we shouldn't worry either. But there's a directive there that is a positive Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. I will take care of you, God says. I will take care of you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And I think it is very important not to get overly to one side and say that it doesn't matter if you lose your job and it doesn't matter if the economy tanks and it doesn't matter if you can't get anything in the stores. On a human level, it does matter. But the bigger picture here is seek first his kingdom. Seek first to glorify God in what you do. Seek first to trust him. 
and to remember that none of this was in your control in the first place. Nothing we do is really under our control at all. We just have to be faithful and to live out what God has told us to do and trust him. We all have to trust our father. And sometimes it's moments like these that really drive home that point when too often we do think we're in control and we trust the stock market when really we ought to be trusting the Lord for all the blessings that he gives to us through vehicles like the stock market or the grocery store. Keep on praying for our nation and seek first his kingdom. Thanks for joining us on Janet Meffer today, and we'll see you next time.